Hey, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode of Salty Saints. I am Zach, and I'm chilling here with Randy. What's up, Randy? Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, you all can't see it, but uh, we've got a lot of bells and whistles now. We have little trinkets that we've added to make uh, recording this just a little bit easier for us, and hopefully listening a lot more enjoyable for you. That's right. The, the, the goal is to kind of... Uh, not need a third person in the room. That's right. right. Yeah, so, yeah. So hopefully we've got it down packed to that at this point. I'm sure we'll still be uh, sorting out other bugs as we go. But today's episode, what are we talking about? Well, you know, way back when we started, we started with an episode on churchy words, which uh, mm-hmm. I thought was just so cool, just the idea, the concept. And we did maybe two episodes on that, and then we've we've done about thirty since then right. on other things, and we're up around forty five, forty six now. And uh, we thought we'd get back to some churchy words. Well, you know what the thing is, um, we we always kind of made the churchy words category as one that could happen over time as needed, and we have gotten a lot of requests. For churchy words. Is that right? Yeah. And I mean, like, I'd kind of brushed a couple of them off for whatever reason. Like, I guess I just forgot. But then um, a couple weeks ago, I don't know why, but it just, like, really stuck with me that I was like, yeah, it really has been a while, hasn't it? It has. Um, it has. And, it's and been they months. started, yeah, they started naming a lot of words that I hadn't even thought about because I'm so deeply ingrained with churchy words that they didn't even click, right? And that's the funny thing, you know, we use them all the time and uh, we just start thinking that everybody else must know what they mean too. And they don't necessarily because they're churchy words. They're they're words that we use inside the church and outside the church, not so much. So right. if you don't hear it, what in the world is it? Right. And so we kind of sat down, what, a, uh, a few days ago and just started naming what ones we could think of. Yeah. And we've got a little bit of a list here, and we're going to start at the top, and we're going to start working through it. And uh, if we go on a little too long, we'll just cut it, and we'll we'll come back and pick up on a few more. But what we've done in the past is we we kind of picked one or two words to focus on. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know that that's the way to go about this. I think I think the way to go about this is to just start going through more and more of them all well, the time. And and you know some churchy words they're really deep and they require a right. lot of explanation. Others not so much. Right. They're, they're pretty simple when you right. start talking about it. Right. Um, so if we go from the top of our list, what, what's our first churchy word to be addressed? Well, the first churchy word that we have here is repentance. Repentance. Yeah. And please forgive us if we've actually done any of these already. I don't think we have. I don't think so. it's not going to be bad for you if we have. (laughs) (laughs) Um, they still mean the same thing, but (laughs) the repetition is, is a, a, uh, actually an educational tool. There you go. So... Repentance. Yeah. It means to turn around. Exactly. It, it literally means to turn around in Greek. Now, right. I'm not so sure what in Hebrew. Now, um, you know, when we do a, a, a podcast on one or two words, I'll usually spend about an hour going in the background and taking a look. I have not done that here. Um I'm struggling to remember an Old Testament passage that talks clearly about repentance. 
I'm sure they're there, and especially probably in the book of Psalms, where David says, I repent. Yeah. But uh, you, you've got you've got a uh, laptop. I've got all the technology that I need, a smartphone, which is way smarter than I am. Yeah. Um, so while we kind of look for um, the appropriate verses on repentance, I think just talking off the top of our head on what it means is just as valuable. Well, and especially in the New Testament, because we right. are living uh, after the New Testament. There, the Greek word literally means to make an about face, to turn around. And it means to change your mind. It's, it's a combination word. What do we call those? A uh, Two words come together and they form another word. Compound, compound word. <laughs> it is a compound word in Greek. I pulled that out of nowhere just for you, man. <laughs> and it literally means to uh, change your mind, yeah. to, to do a 180. What before you thought you no longer think you have repented? Um, okay, so right off the bat, uh, I'm seeing Ezekiel. Uh, repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Um, I'm seeing it in Ezekiel. Um, I'm seeing it in Job. Uh, but if they do not hear, they shall perish by the sword and they will die without knowledge. Actually, sorry, that that's not one. Um, there, there, are, there are things about like turning to me, returning to me. Uh, or turning from their Return wicked ways. Return to me is a, yeah, that's a real common Old Testament phrase, I think. Okay. Jo- Jonah does have uh, turned from their wicked ways. Okay. I don't know okay. if that counts as yeah, a repent. probably. I mean, re- repentance is tough to me because a lot of the time it gets chalked up to meaning saying, just saying you did something wrong. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. I was actually thinking about that, thinking we ought to uh, ought to address that. Um, if we've done something wrong, certainly we should repent. But when Jesus starts his ministries, he says, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. It's like there's not necessarily a horrible... He wasn't saying, oh, Israel, you're a nation of serial killers or... Uh, you're a, you're a nation of whatever. He didn't name out sin. He just said the way you're living your life, you need to change. You need to repent. You need to turn around. Right, and and, and it's it, it it's a it's I think it's all about a heart disposition. That it's about the idea of being open to constantly trying to be more like Christ. It's about every day saying, hey, I know I sinned. Please yeah. forgive me. Make me better today. I want to be better today. Um, with that said, I think it gets abused as sort of a license to sin by some uh, because when you chalk it up to simply just saying, hey, I did wrong. Sorry. Okay, cool. I'm forgiven. All right. See you tomorrow. You know, like that's that's not good. You shouldn't be there with it, um, and I think it's easy to get there with it if you're really just wanting to do whatever you're wanting to do. Yeah. But at the same time, it's also not a legalistic um, 
you earn your salvation situation. Oh gosh, it's not that either. It's this. It's the middle ground, right? So, looking back at what Jesus says at the very start of his ministry, repent and believe the good news. He does not say repent of your sins. Okay, now New Living Translation plugs in repent of your sins. And I think it does that probably because repent is used so commonly with sin, and it's kind of hard to understand. But is it possible that we need to repent simply of a lifestyle that might not even be a sinful lifestyle? It's just not everything that God wants us to be. Can we repent of the American dream, for example? Uh There's nothing wrong with having a house, with having a car, with sending your kids off to college. But I wonder if Jesus is saying the way you're living your life is not bringing you to a closer relationship with me. Repent of that. Jason is going to be so annoyed that I keep bringing up this, this mental image that he brought up last week couple weeks ago. Mm. Uh, but it fits so many things, that idea of that maze. The maze. The maze. The maze that, that isn't a maze. <laughs> the maze that isn't a maze. It, we make it a maze. Right. It's not supposed to be. It's a straight shot, right? The, the, the picture Jason illustrated, he actually, he talked about it a few weeks ago, and then he actually plugged it into, into his sermon. But what he said is, I've, he said, I've got this picture in my head, and it's like this maze but it's not really a maze. It's just a straight shot. It's a hallway from me to Jesus. You're at the start. Jesus is at the end. He's right in front and of you. All you have and to there's do is walk nothing between you and him. All you have to do is walk. But along the way, there are all <laughs> these offshoots from that hallway. Yeah. And they want to pull you in different directions. And you don't know what's down those hallways. Sometimes you've got an idea of what might be down those hallways. But when you go down those hallways, they're never the way to Jesus. The way to Jesus is very simple. It's very straight and narrow. (laughs) And the thing is, some of those hallways, some of those paths that lead away, sometimes it's sin. Sometimes, you know, it's, uh, okay, let's let's oppress somebody and let's let's, uh, do things... Uh, by which we can take their money from right. them. and But some of them aren't sin. No. Some of them are, in fact, very good things that we can get involved in doing that doesn't lead us straight to Jesus. One of those pathways, I am convinced, can be church. We can get so involved in church that we forget about Jesus. Right, where we're, it's all about the church at that point. It's not about Jesus. Right, It's right. about the tradition. It's about the ritual. It's about the idea. It's about exactly. the people. But it's exactly. not about what Jesus is telling right. us to do. Right, And so that's what I'm saying, though, is I feel like that's such a good mental image. And maybe it's not perfect, you know, because, like, we're not saying that you shouldn't chase the American dream. We're not saying that you shouldn't be involved in your church. We're saying you should do those things in a way that leads you down that hall closer to Christ. They are not an end in themselves. Exactly. They're a pathway to get to Jesus. Right. They they happen along the way. Right. But 
I guess the way I'm seeing it is we stop along the way to Jesus often, and we get caught up looking down those hallways, and we start thinking, what's down that hallway? I might start down that hallway, or maybe maybe I don't even start down that hallway. Maybe I just stand there and I stare down it, and I, I can't stop thinking about it. And repentance is Jesus saying, no, you need to turn back and you need to look at me again. Turn back, yeah. You need to start heading back this way because that way isn't going to get you where you need to be. And so I I think that's a perfect, not perfect, a really good illustration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Next word? Yeah, let's do it. Grace. (sighs) Grace. That's a big one. That is a big one. And so, I mean, that's... That's a word we hear in the world, too, but not nearly as often. Um, Grace is the idea of receiving something you don't deserve, right? Yeah. Or is grace the giving of something you don't deserve? No, that's mercy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They get a little tricky because they're kind of intertwined. Yeah. Yeah, so so grace is something to be received, mercy is something to be given. And so when we talk about grace, we often we're talking about God's love. Yeah. Because we don't deserve it. And that's uh there is a uh a Hebrew term hesed. Um it's translated all over the board. It's got a lot of translations. Sometimes it's translated love Sometimes it's translated loving kindness. Sometimes it's mercy. Sometimes it's grace. Oh, so it's kind of, it's a big word. It's that, a huge word. For, yeah. for those of you, though, that are unfamiliar with Hebrew, it, that's kind of how the language works. Yeah. Uh, words mean multiple things because they've got so few words. There are only 1,100 words And you've got to what? You've told, I think you told me this. You've got to be able to communicate 20,000 ideas for, Something a, like that, for yeah. a language to be like usable. The average sixth grader has a vocabulary of about 25,000 words. Wow. So you take 1,100 words and use that to communicate 25,000 concepts, and what you get is a lot of repetition. One word stands for a lot of uh, usually very related topics. Right, right. But it makes for a very poetic language. Yes, it does. Because you have to use your brain to speak it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you do. You've got to have you context. Do. You've got to have an idea of what's going on. You... And in Hebrew, every time you say something, you're bringing to mind another four or five different concepts that are related and kind of sit back there and say, yeah, what about me? What about me? <laughs> but isn't that interesting, though, that God would choose that language to to give his word to the world through? And he did choose not only a particular people, but the language. Right. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I, it's fascinating. It's interesting. It's fascinating. But, but so, so grace, though, it's... I guess what we're trying to do here with the churchy words thing is say, like, when we say this, this is what we mean. Right. When I hear grace, I hear a kind, kind of like you were just saying with Hebrew, I hear a couple different things. I hear, one, that God is very kind and good and that mm-hmm. he is giving me a gift that I don't deserve. And that's the second half of it is that I 
don't deserve it. And so then I'm reminded of my sin. Then I'm reminded of who I've been and who I am at times and that, that I I don't do what's right and yet God still extends his grace. And so it's kind of like a mirroring. Like when you talk about grace, you you hear who God is and you right. hear who you are. When you think of the Old Testament, typically you don't think first of uh grace and mercy. Uh, you think of a God, oh, there's wars, and God, at, at one point, he rains down uh, hail from heaven to destroy his enemies, and the plagues of Egypt, and he kills all the firstborns, and tra-la, tra-la, tra-la. You just go on and on and on, and horrible things. But all of that is in the context of God trying to build an atmosphere of grace and mercy. One of the things that he that he does, uh, actually all throughout the Old Testament, um, he communicates pretty successfully to Israel. You don't deserve this, but I love you anyway. Right, right. And I mean, that's ultimately what's communicated through Jesus. Yeah, it ends up in the New Testament, the, the, the sort of the quintessential, uh, the the epitome of that communication. Jesus comes and shows us what an actually mercy-filled life is like. You know, I, I think one of the most important stories in the entire Bible is one that I don't hear people mention a lot, and it's Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac to God. Yeah, yeah. And I think that communicates God's grace almost better than anything. Like, it, it's just such a perfect picture of it that Abraham is a sinner. Yeah. And the price for sin is death. And God's saying, okay, take your son up on this hill and you're going to sacrifice him to me. Yeah. And it's like God just wanted to know that Abraham was willing to do what he – really what he – he had to. I mean, what he, what was required of him? I mean, that that he had to go pay for his sin, right? He had to go. He had to go do what God requested because he God's God and Abraham's a right, sinner, right? And so he, he has to listen to him. And so he gets up there, and then God says, "No, no, no, don't do it." You know, I've provided the sacrifice, and in that context of the story, you think it's the is it a goat over? It's a ram. In, or, or, it's a ram. The, the ram with his horns. Horns stuck in are cut in the thicket. Yeah, yeah, so so in that story, you think that's what God's provided. But in Christ, you see, no, yeah. the sacrifice I provided is my son. I don't need yours. Right, right. I'm giving you mine. And you don't deserve it, but here you go. You know, like... Okay, Zach, you brought it up. Okay. So uh, you're going you're gonna to pay for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here's all kinds of stuff that you didn't necessarily want to even know about that. First of all, the location, uh, Genesis chapter, what is it, uh, 20, where uh, Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, occurs on Mount Moriah. Yeah. Mount Moriah in Second Chronicles chapter 3, I think it is, is clearly identified. It says Mount Moriah, which is Jerusalem. Right. This is where Jerusalem was eventually built. Right. So what you have is Abraham going to a a hill 
on top of the mountain right. where Jesus is eventually crucified. Right. Uh, the the parallel is just so incredible. Right. Because Abraham, the father, goes to sacrifice his son some 2,000, 3,000 years later. God goes to the very same hilltop with his son. And that time, there was no ram in the thicket. No. That time, the sacrifice took place, and Jesus died for us. Now, the second thing, this comes out through uh, intertestamental literature, primarily through books like the Book of Jubilees and a couple of the testaments that are written between the two Testaments, testaments of Abraham, uh, the testament of Moses, and uh, it's it's the final words, the the parting shot of these great heroes of Jewish faith and what they say. In one, in in more than one, in about three of those uh, documents, they expand on this story, and what they indicate is uh, actually probably pretty factual, that Isaac, they came to the bottom of the mountain, they left their animals, their donkeys or camels, I don't know what they were on. They were carrying wood, and Abraham carried fire with him. Because you don't just go someplace and start a fire. Uh, If you have a fire going, then typically you'll You'll get something nice and hot, and you'll put it inside a horn. But you've got to carry that and kind of tend to it. Even as you're going up to make sure that that ember doesn't die out, you're constantly stopping and trying to to get it to, to come back to life. So Abraham carries the fire. Isaac carries the wood, enough wood to make a sacrifice. So it's not a couple of sticks. It's a significant amount of wood that he's carrying. So Isaac is old enough to be able to defend himself when his dad says, it's time for the sacrifice and you are the sacrifice. So in the intertestamental literature, they talk about the Akeda Isaac, That is the binding of Isaac. And it's the concept that Isaac was not a passive participant in this episode, but an active participant. And he offers himself to his father to be bound. In fact, in one of those documents, Isaac goes into a long speech where he says to Abraham, Please bind me because I'm afraid that as you plunge the knife into my heart, I might automatically react and try to avoid what I know God wants, which is my death. In the New Testament, you get something very similar to that frequently, and especially in Paul. When Paul talks about the death of Jesus. There are many times that the vocabulary that he uses is the faith of 
Jesus. And usually our translators have translated that faith in Jesus. But it's also possible to translate that, not the faith of Jesus, but the faithfulness Hmm. of Jesus. And that's saying Jesus, too, was a willing participant in the sacrifice on the cross. Right. We definitely see that in Gethsemane and, and in the way Jesus behaved on the cross. But Paul comes back around, and he uses this figure of the faithfulness of the Son uh, in engaging in the sacrifice. Um, he uses that to talk about the faithfulness of Jesus in submitting to the sacrifice. This is a different side of grace that we don't normally think about or talk about. It's grace in its sacrificial form. It is God offering himself to us at immense cost. Right. It's, It's showing that grace isn't cheap. And like we've talked about before, we have a tendency to try to make grace cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the one who coined that phrase. Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who was offered a position at Union Theological Seminary in New York at the start of World War II. Very influential position, prestigious, very well-paid position. He turned it down, went back to Nazi Germany, and participated in sort of undercover operations to thwart the Nazi party. Hmm. He ended up going to prison, and he was hung 12 days before uh, VE Day, before Victory in Europe Day. Hmm. That's interesting. It's awful. (laughs) It's awful, but he coined the phrase cheap grace, and he said... Grace is not cheap. Grace is never cheap. Discipleship, he says this in a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And what he says there is that discipleship is very expensive. It costs God and it costs us as we follow God. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. Hey, and before we move on to something I wanted to say, um, you were quoting like about the binding of Isaac. Right. And that's from extra-biblical works, right? It is. And so I know it's something – this is kind of a – this is a great time to say this. Churchy words are a thing we talk about because we just say them, and you and I know what each other mean. And I know when you say, uh, oh, this is from the book of Maccabees, or this is from the book of – Intertestamental literature. Intertestamental literature. Um, I know that – you're not trying to say that scripture. It's not for, canon. It's not scripture. So for anybody listening right here, we're n- every once in a while, and I think we need to try and be clear when we mention yeah, it. Yeah, we'll do that. That we do think that it's stuff we can learn from. We can we can take things from it and say, oh, that's where their heads were at. That's exactly, what, and that's what it's useful for. It shows us sort of their. Uh, the, the uh, frame of, of mind. Yeah, the people of that time. Right. What they were thinking about. And when 
Paul talks about the faithfulness of Jesus, he probably had in mind the Isaac. Right. Whether or not the, those words between a- Abraham and Isaac are historically a, a true thing that happened. Oh, they're almost certainly not right. historical. But the idea but still holds. But they do point at a valid idea, exactly. which is as Isaiah was old enough to, if if not beat his dad down, he was at least old enough to run away. Right. And he chose not to. And so the, and so the reason we reference it is is for that idea to be communicated. Exactly. Not because we believe that it is right. the God-breathed word of God. You know, like it's, it certainly is not. Right, right, right. right. So sorry about that. I just no, want to no, make no. that clear. Valid point. What's, uh, what's our next word? Next word that we have here is actually the word theology. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> we, we thought that this one made sense. So uh, you're studying theology. So what is theology? I do... I, I hope that I give you an accurate representation of what theology is. Theology, this is going to be the Zach version, um, is schools of thought around the Word of God and around the, the, the meaning of the Word of God. And so it's sort of like a structure that gets built around the Bible and says, oh, this is what that means. Yeah. Um, and so every denomination has a different theology. And we have a really weird theology here at New Hope because we don't belong to a denomination. Right, <laughs> so, right, right. So we, I feel like we borrow from here and from there and, and we weigh things against each other and go, oh, well, these two both make sense because this is what it says in the Bible, you know? And, right. and so we're always weighing everything back against Scripture. But everybody has a theology, and everybody's theologies are probably a little different. But the idea is to point you towards the truth. So can a theology be wrong? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's where we get the term heresy. Right. That is a incorrect theology. And it's not just an incorrect theology like about secondary issues. Heresy is an incorrect theology about core issues. About, about a of primary issue. Right, yeah. like the Trinity, about right. who Christ is, about who God is, about salvation. Um, her- heresy is basically like... I um, What I think about heresy, heresy is when it's pulling you away from from growing closer to Christ. Mm. That's a good point. That's um, a good, uh, good way to look at it. Right. Like if, if you're worshiping Jesus, but your Jesus is like not the Jesus of the Bible, are you really worshiping Jesus? Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, or are you like it, it's like if I made up a bunch of stories about you and started telling everybody, oh yeah, the, Randy he uh, he killed a bunch of people back in the day, <laughs> and uh, he's been he's been on the run from the cops forever, and uh, from the Colombian cops. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then after he did that, he started clubbing a bunch of baby seals, you know, or, I, you know, and then everybody starts believing that about you. It's not true. That's not who you are, right? But now they've got this warped view of you, and so right, whatever right. feelings they have towards you. It's not really you. It's some other thing. And in a case, in in the case of Jesus, particularly in God, I I think the way it typically runs is uh, it's not that people create these stories just because they want to create them. It's because they want to love Jesus. They want to be identified as a follower of Jesus, but they're more interested in perpetuating their own lifestyle. Yeah. So they will read their own lifestyle back into 
Jesus's life and say, oh, oh, well, look at him here. For example, for example, we ministered in Colombia to um, one of the unreached segments in Colombian society were the uh, middle and upper classes. So I began to hear among some of the people that we were reaching out to that, oh, look, uh, Joseph and Mary were actually middle-class Jewish citizens. And somebody told me that. I said, okay, that's interesting. Why? And they said, well, because Joseph had a job. He, he, was, he had his own shop. Uh, he was a carpenter, so he had a carpenter's shop. And uh, uh, that was not uh, a, a small position. That was a middle-class position in Jesus' day. Well, the interesting thing is, nowhere in Scripture does it say that Joseph owned a shop. Right. <laughs> but they were reading back. They wanted to be able to say, Jesus is just like me. They were applying their own presuppositions exactly. to what they were reading. Right. It, presupposition. Why are there so many big words we, we then have to yeah. jump in and explain? Uh, we'll that's get, not a churchy word, though. That's that would be your around. Yeah. They, they had thoughts of their own that they plugged in to what they were reading. And they read it back into right, Jesus' right. life. It's sort of like the idea of like uh, like rose-colored glasses, you know, like yeah. you're reading yeah. it through a filter. Right. Um, right. Everything you see now is rose-colored. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so the thing about theology is you want you want the best theology possible. Right? You want your theology to be the truth. So That's what's the criteria that you measure theology by? Well, this is a little difficult, Randy, because people are going to disagree with what I'm about to say. Okay. As a Protestant, I would say scripture. What are some other answers? Well, okay. Here's where it gets a little even tricky for me is because while I believe scripture is the sole thing that we can weigh truth by. I don't mean to discredit church tradition. I do not mean to discredit experience. And I do not mean to discredit... What's the other one? There's four of them. There's four tenets because Wesley added experience, and I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's yeah, tradition, yeah. there's scripture, there's experience, and there's... Is it logic? Or? Logic. It's it is logic. logic. Okay. Um, and, and, so, and so, yeah, I... I weigh heavily on logic because we live in the Western yeah. hemisphere where everything's about science. Right. And so we have to deal with logic constantly. But if I were in a tribe in the middle of the Amazon that's never met anybody outside of it, I don't know that logic's going to play as much a role in certain things. Right. Like it will in a lot of things, but but not everything has to be logical. Some things just are. I think uh, not only does everything not have to be logical, I think there are some tenets of theology that are illogical, like the Trinity, three in one. Right. It is illogical, but it is truth. It makes no sense, but, but it is but true. It, but, but the reason we land on it as truth is it is written in Scripture. So the it, Bible is kind of the core. That is the, the core. central core. That is the core. Um, and so the reason I say some would disagree with this, uh, the Catholic Church would say no. They would say it's Scripture and, and the Church yeah. or tradition, however right. you look at it. Right, right. Um, 
the reason I say no to that is, well, the Catholic Church has been wrong about things and has expressed that it's been wrong about things. It and has so modified how its do position you weigh, over the years. Yeah. Exactly. And so how do you weigh what's true then right. if you then turn around and go, oh, yeah, no, it's about the church too. That's equally important. Right. But Oh, wait, but that's been flawed before. So, okay, well, then now we have to cross that off and say, okay, that can't be the thing we weigh things by. But Scripture is never wrong. It has not been wrong. Right, right. right. Um, Which, of course, our understanding of Scripture is frequently wrong. Absolutely. So, um, but that's not a problem with Scripture. That's not a, that's that's a problem with you that's and me. That's a me problem. Exactly. It's not a Bible problem. Exactly. <laughs> and so... Um, Experience, I think, is also important. Wesley added that, and he sure, is a Protestant. Sure, sure. But then there's people that take experience and they run with it, and right. they're like, "Oh, it's all about experience." This is my experience. You can't tell me I'm wrong. Right, and that's kind of what Mormons do. Um, if you okay. confront a Mormon with theology with, or with biblical theology and say, "Well, wait, read right here," it, it says that, like for instance, Mormons believe they're all going to be gods one day. Right. Okay. Right. Which. That is heresy. <laughs> Talking definitely, about heresy. Definitely. Um, the Bible says, I know of no other gods. There are none before me. There will be none after me. Right. Well, then a Mormon would look at you and say, well, I'm just going to go pray about that. And then they go pray about it. And then God tells them, oh, nope, it's okay. You just keep believing what you're believing. Yeah. And then they say, oh, no, it's cool. I had a divine revelation. Everything's fine. This is really what it is. And it's like, wait, that's not fair. You can't just... Make things up as you go. Right, it, right. Um, and so that's the problem with, with running with experience, uh, or, or it becomes all, all about chasing experience. Right. Um, and then logic. We can get so logical that we – I mean, that's what atheism is. Sure. It's all about logic. Absolutely. There is no room for anything but logic. Right. But then it falls flat on its face all the time, and I don't even want to get into that. But <laughs> <laughs> um, my, I, I guess that's – it's got to come down to scripture. The next churchy word is, uh, I don't think we want to talk about theology without talking about this one. It's apologetics. And we've talked here about apologetics. They go hand in hand, right? They really do. And, and that's really what we've kind of chalked salty saints up to being. Yeah. It's about apologetics and it's about faith stories. Yeah. And the thing about apologetics is you can't have apologetics without theology. And that's right. why a lot right. of our stuff devolves into theology pretty quickly. I would say that primarily apologetics is putting theology, putting scripture in words and thought systems by using logic that a contemporary person would understand. Right. So uh, apologetics does not create a different or a new theology. But it would seek to communicate the theology in a meaningful way to a 21st century person. Can I go out on a limb here and say something that I don't know is accurate, but I'm just kind of running with what's popping into my head? Go for it. Is it safe to say that apologetics is the use of theology through – or sorry, is the use of scripture or theology through – the vehicle of logic, experience, and the church, that they are the vehicles through which we can express biblical, scriptural theology? Yeah, you may be writing a dictionary definition there. 
Um, because like like you just said, it's about making it make sense in this world. Well, that's right. logic right. or that's experience or for some that's church. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I would go the further step of saying in language understandable to a contemporary. And I add that because as early as the second century, as early as 150 years after the death of Jesus, you have Justin Martyr writing a book that he called Apologia. He wrote an apologetics book. And you read that book today, and it doesn't make much sense to us because it was not written for us. It was written for his time. It was written for his time for the people living in his land. That makes sense. And that is apologetics. It's written for people of our time. What what that means is that we constantly have to be finding a way to communicate the gospel. Not in a way that we understand, but in a way that somebody who's never heard the gospel before will understand. And so, okay, I 100% agree. Um Maybe it's important, though, to say, what is apologetics? It's to make a defense, to build a defense for your faith. That's what The word defined is, the the root of the word means to defend. Right, to defend. And so how you do that looks a lot of different ways for a lot of different people, a lot of different times. It has to look different ways. Right, because every it's like what you were talking it, evangelism and apologetics go hand in hand as well. It really is. Well, I mean, it's almost like it's all one big body. <laughs> How weird. How weird. You know, saying it that way and defining it that way brings to mind um I think his name is Don Richardson. He wrote a book back in the 70s called Peace Child. Have you ever heard of that book? Mm-hmm. So in the book uh, he tells a story. He was a missionary in Papua New Guinea, and he went into a tribe, and the tribe uh, valued deceit. It valued warfare. They were a cannibalistic tribe, so when they would defeat an enemy, they'd cut them open and they'd eat body parts, especially the heart and the liver. Yum. <laughs> There's a topic for our next cooking show, <laughs> Um, and he struggled. How do I communicate Jesus? When he told the story of Judas, they thought Judas was the hero because he betrayed Jesus, and they valued deception. What he found was that when two tribes were fighting against each other, when they wanted to make peace, the king of one tribe or the chief or whatever he was called would take his son and he would give him to the chief of the other tribe. And then there would be peace between the two tribes. Hmm. Peace Child is the name of the book. He began telling the story of Jesus as God coming to the earth and battling the sin that was in the earth. So he gave his son to, to mankind, and the whole tribe converted. <laughs> they understood. They understood. It was an apologetic presentation, uh, not in a way that would make no. any sense whatsoever to me. No. But it made sense to them. 
Well, and that's what we're looking but, for. But, and that's just it, though, is now that we know their lives, like now that you just – to anybody listening to this, you just explained that tribe's view on peace and on making things right. Now we know that about them, and right. now we understand why that made sense for them. Yeah. But we had to know them first. That's right. Right. That's right. And so that's the thing is like we try and shut ourselves off in these little bubbles. It, that's This is why it makes no sense well, to live in a strictly Christian bubble. Right, right. Because you can never help anyone that way. And that's the importance of apologetics because it starts, we've got to understand scripture, we've got to understand theology, yeah, but we've got to understand the people that we're trying to reach as well. You have to try and understand where other people are coming from. And I'm not saying you need to like agree with it. You shouldn't. No. But you need to know where they're at in order to know how to best right. communicate to them. Exactly. And so there's a relational aspect to apologetics. Very much so. And so... Or there should be. There should be. I think some people make apologetics about getting a speech, right? Yeah, and I think at that point it's not apo- apologetic. It ceases being apologetic. That's not an offense. That's an attack. Right. <laughs> Good point. And you're not listening anymore. You're not... You're not I think part of our problem as Christians is we understood the gospel in a particular way. And so we tend to want to communicate the gospel in that same way. That particular way is not meaningful to the people that we're trying to reach today. So if we go to them and talk about repenting of their sins, first of all, they're going to say, I don't have any sins. Right. Yeah. It gives a reason why you need to keep learning. Right. Why you need to keep learning about other people. Right. Why you need to be okay with thinking about the Bible in other ways that are still biblical, even if maybe it's not the way you've always thought about it. Yeah. Be, be open-minded, but know where to say, no, that's not right. Or, okay, yeah, I, I can I can see that. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think we got time for one more word. Do we? Okay. Um, well, the next word in the list has no bearing whatsoever with any of the things that we have talked about. Prophecy. Prophecy? Yeah. Are there any that make more sense with what we've been doing? I'm okay Not with digging really. in. Okay. Well, gospel is one. Maybe we should talk about gospel. Let's do gospel. And we'll, and we'll come back. We'll and get rid of the ones we've done prophet, this time. Prophecy later. Yeah, we'll, we'll hit yeah. those later. Let's okay. do gospel. That makes a little more sense with the okay. thing. Um, the gospel is the good news. The Greek word is literally good news, and it was not a churchy word originally. The gospel was that the good news is what would take place when a new Caesar was named. (laughs) (laughs) They would go and they would announce, so-and-so is now the Caesar, hear the gospel of I did Rome. not know that. Yeah, yeah. That makes that it is amazing and it it makes beautiful sense. Oh, well, it makes more sense now too why Rome is so mad about it. <laughs> because I mean, you got these people running around saying that this man they just killed is the new king. Right. I yeah, I Hear get the it. the gospel of the new ruler who is not Nero or Augustus or any of those guys, it's Jesus. <laughs> that makes so much more sense. See, I've I've always known it was the good news. I didn't know that Roman caveat yeah. out there. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. 
Um, what is the good news? Well, the good news, um, every time that, uh, I say every time, I don't know, a lot of times that Jesus uses the good news, it's all about his coming. It's all about uh, the kingdom of God is here. I'm the king. He presented himself in kingly fashion. Mm -hmm. He presented himself as Messiah. And the Messiah was the king of God's coming kingdom. So frequently when he says, hear the gospel, it's in the context of God's kingdom is here. Um, The gospel includes an idea of, you need to follow me now. You need to submit to me. You've got a new king. It's not Judas Maccabees. It's not Julius Caesar. It's not Herod Antipas. It's me. You need to be following me. It's kind of like what side are you on? Yeah, I'm seeing. I'm feeling like a a Lord of the Rings kind of vibe here. <laughs> like you've got this big war stirring. Certain people know it's coming. Gandalf, the the kind of angel figure, he sees it coming. He knows what's coming, and he's rallying the troops because it's on its way. And then by the end of it, you got Aragorn, who is the rightful king. Right is going to take his throne. And Gandalf knows that, right? It, it, and so it's about getting all the guys. It's, it, either you're on, you're with team good guys or team bad guys, right. and team good guys looks a whole lot less likely to win right. than team bad guys. Right, yeah. right. I'm convinced that most uh, epic stories like that are secretly their Jesus stories. Oh, I don't, Lord of the Rings <laughs> isn't secretly a Jesus story. It's, it's, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty blatant. Um One of the things that's really interesting, you get this phrase, repent and believe, repent and believe in me. So uh, I was reading in Thomas Wright, uh, one of the books that he wrote in uh, Foundations of Christianity and the Question of God. Uh, Right now there are five books, uh, four, but one of the books is so big. The smallest book is about that thick, about two inches thick. And the last book that he put out is about three and a half inches thick. So he put it out in two volumes. But in one of those books, he talks about this little episode with Josephus. Another intertestamental, well, actually he's not intertestamental. He writes uh, after the crucifixion of Jesus. Is that extra-testamental? I don't know what it is. (laughs) Extra-biblical? It's certainly extra-biblical. But one of the books that he writes is an autobiography, and he talks about himself. And he says that in a particular situation, he was told uh, uh, he was now working for the Roman government. He was a commander. And he was told to go in to uh, Jerusalem and to quell a riot that was being formed by this particular Jewish man who had a bunch of followers, and he was trying to revolt against Rome. So Josephus says, uh, let's you and I meet, and we'll talk, and let's leave our weapons behind. So they both do, and they come together to talk, but Josephus brings his bodyguard with him, (laughs) which is a group of like 20 Roman soldiers armed to the hilt. 
And so here's this guy all of a sudden surrounded by 20 armed men. And Josephus says, repent and believe in me. And what he is actually saying is change what you were doing and align yourself with my point of view. Hmm. Now that's what Jesus is saying when he says repent and believe the gospel. Change the way you were living and align yourself with what the gospel says. So that opens the door in our minds for the gospel to be a little bit wider than just the news of Jesus' coming. It's a whole lifestyle. The gospel comes to represent everything that Jesus stood for. A particular way of living, a, a, a particular set of values that are different from the values that they that the common people might have held. A different set of assumptions, including primarily the assumption that Jesus is the Messiah, mm-hmm. and a different set of presuppositions. That's a D- different presuppositions about even what the Messiah is. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, it's different. That is a worldview. Uh, the gospel gives us a different worldview. So, yeah, I mean it's. Yeah, I, I like that you brought up the repent and believe in me thing because with the gospel, when you hear the good news, this new proclamation of a new king, and it's God himself, yeah, right? You are faced with two options. You do repent and believe or you don't repent and believe. <laughs> and one of those things leads to life, and one of those things leads to where mm-hmm. the rest of the world is going. That's right. And it's not good. And Jesus is pretty clear about saying it just in those terms. Right. Enter the narrow gate. The narrow gate leads to life. Right. The wide gate leads to death and damnation and destruction. And what that actually looks like, we'll get into that some other time. <laughs> that's one of the churchy words that we have here. So, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's the thing about all these churchy words. That's the thing about everything biblical. It's so deeply connected. Yeah. Like, we can't talk about one of these things without referencing the other things. Have you noticed that? That's right. Yeah. It's it's all mixed together. It's all joined. Because it paints a picture. It's yeah. like, it. You, I, I don't know, like... You don't look at a Rembrandt painting, and like if you took all the red out of the painting, the yeah. painting probably doesn't make sense anymore. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like it's it's one color, but it, it, they all work together to make the painting, yep. the picture. Um, yeah, you, you, the the gospel is about grace and repentance, and it's about there we go repentance, grace, it. some of the. Some of the words that we talked about. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Everything we've done today, it's all just one thing. And that's why this is all so important because how can you effectively talk about and understand Jesus, the Bible, if you're not if you're not looking for this stuff? You gotta try. The interesting thing is that churchy words have influenced business as well. I've uh, read a couple of uh, Harvard Business things. They 
put out a magazine. They put out articles every once in a while. One of the guys talks about the gospel of your product and evangelizing. <laughs> That's, I don't think I like that. <laughs> In terms of marketing. Yeah, I kind of get what he's doing. I'm not totally sure why he's doing it other than he's saying, uh, Let's let's take a look at what the church is doing here. It works for these guys, all right. It, it's worked for these guys, and in addition, ultimately, what you're talking about when you're talking about marketing is you've got to repent of using AT and T and believe in Verizon. That is so not okay <laughs> in my head right now. Like, like I'm trying to wrestle with the idea of whether that is like blasphemy or not. <laughs> It, it kind of seems like it. I don't know. Whether it is or not, I don't know, but uh, it's reality. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, I hope you guys enjoyed uh, learning about some some new churchy words. And once again, I, I hope we didn't uh, redo any of these. But like Randy said, if we did, hey, that's good for you. That's a great study technique. So um, <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening. If you've got any questions for us, send them to saltysaints at becomehope.com or at questions at becomehope.com. Um, make sure to give us a like, a follow, subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, leave us a comment. Uh, stay salty. Have you ever felt conflict between your faith and feelings? If so, you're not alone. My name's Carly Mercouillier. I'm a licensed therapist and the host of the Therapy and Theology podcast, where we explore popular topics and questions related to faith, feelings, and spiritual formation. I want to invite you to join me every Thursday as we fearlessly name the complexities of our reality, grow in the awareness of who we are, and rediscover the power and purpose of our unique stories through the lens of the gospel. Subscribe today at lifeaudio.com.